everyone. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for tuning in to episode number six of the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we reinvent and gain uh, the deepest understanding possible of the stuff that matters most. And today we have on guest Eric Steinhardt, who is a professor of philosophy who's using science, logic, and philosophy to reimagine possibilities for how we think about our life, our future, our death, our existence, God, and more. Now, Eric Steinhardt, uh, I'm super excited to have on. He is a very uh, warm and helpful colleague. He actually, I became aware of his work when he emailed me about a paper that I had written, and I am a lowly somewhat lowly graduate student, um, and he has been very kind and helpful, very helpful and inspiring ever since then. Now, the work that he does is really fascinating. He sort of bridges the gap between our our philosophies and our spiritualities and our sciences in really new and incredibly important ways. Very few people are doing the kinds of things that that he is doing. Um, and it's it's important because our religious landscape is changing and the way that we think about our worlds and, and our science is changing, it's evolving rapidly and we need to be able to continue to make sense of things and to experience the sacred or wonder or what have you in this evolving world, right? And so Professor Steinhardt is at the heart, you know, he's right at the core of the types of things that are new and exciting to think about and, and also the ways that we can be feeling them and relating to them. So uh, I'll talk with him at length about that. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to talk about everything I'd like to. So I will uh, have him back on if people in the audience uh, like him. So quickly, um, I want to tell you a little bit about his background, read his bio. Eric Steinhardt grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania. He received his bachelor's in computer science from Penn State University, after which he worked as a software designer and his algorithms, many of them were patented. He earned a master's degree in philosophy from Boston College and was awarded a PhD in philosophy from uh, the State University of New York at Stony Brook, which is a great school. He teaches at William Patterson University and is a regular academic visitor at Dartmouth College, which is where I went to school. His books have concerned Nietzsche, the logic of metaphor, mathematics, and life after death, all of which are fascinating. He has published several dozen academic articles. He uses new digital ideas to solve old philosophical problems. He is especially interested in new and emerging religions and spiritualities. He loves New England and the American West and enjoys all types of hiking, biking, chess, and photography. So that is our guest today. I'm super excited to have him on. We'll get with him in just a moment. Some quick housekeeping issues. Uh, first, there will, uh, I will have show notes for this episode. They are hosted at stephanierupert.com, S-T-E-F-A-N-I, ruper.com. Um, if you want to click, you know, find the books that Eric has written or his website or what have you, it'll all be there. Um, secondly, the only other thing that I want to do is ask you to write a review of the podcast um, and or subscribe. It would be really helpful for me. 
if you love it, if you think you might love it eventually, if you don't quite, but you're feeling magnanimous today, uh, drop us a review. If you don't know how to do that on iTunes, uh, you can go to stephanieruper.com slash review and it'll take you right to the page. If you're there, um, you can, you can just do it. And I'm also um, scratching your back back if you do this. Uh, I have a list of books that I adore and think are important and also very accessible uh, in terms of how we think about the world or ourselves or make sense of things, um, spanning from like the little prints to books written by Carl Sagan uh, and everything in between. There's uh, philosophy, cultural criticism, scientific ideas, positive psychology, how to be happy, how to think about um, life and stuff. All those things are on this list of books, which, uh, which I host at my website. You can read the list, stephanierupert.com slash book giveaway. Um, so if you write a review of this podcast, I will, uh, I will enter you into a drawing for a free book, which I will do once a week. And so all you have to do is while you're writing the review, take a screenshot and email it to me at tmoeverything at gmail.com. I know I'm giving you a lot of links and things, um, but this is the really only important piece if you want a book is tmoeverything at gmail.com. If you want to see the list of books, stephanierupert.com slash book giveaway. Uh, and mostly I just want to say I'm using this as a way to say thank you. Thank you for helping me and for helping us and for helping us um, become more erudite and aware and what have you. So thank you very, uh, very much. And thank you for your patience in these housekeeping issues. Um, now I will, uh, I will bring on our professor. Okay. Uh, welcome, Eric. How are you? I'm good. Hello, Stephanie. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. I uh, was just telling, uh, just telling everybody about how exciting I find your work. Um, so I, yes, uh, and, and they heard it, they heard it from me, uh, but it always helps a little bit, I think, I think to hear it, you know, to hear it from you. So could you perhaps, you know, tell us a little bit about your work and if you can, like why you do it or the things about it that you find most like important, most relevant, like what, what makes it tick, you know, what do you want to Sure. Sure. Thanks. Um, I think that mostly right now I'm thinking about what might be called spiritual naturalism. Mm. And it's a, obviously a naturalistic kind of approach to thing. It's not, not sort of dogmatic naturalism. I'm pretty open-minded about things, but I've been struck by the fact that so much philosophy and also culture um, in the West and the English speaking worlds particularly is caught between a kind of uh, dualistic, you know, one dimensional, philosophy of either you're like a theist and you believe in God and the Bible and all this stuff, or you're just an atheist and you don't have any spirit, you know, spirituality is just woo woo nonsense and you can't have anything besides, I don't know what, um, a rock, you get a rock. <laughs> you know, right. either, like, either the Bible or a rock. And I wanted to just say that, no, that's not the case. Uh, so most of my work, I think, uh, most recently has been trying to address that, try to build a third way. I'm, I'm certainly not alone in this, um, but I think it needs to be done. Yeah, I, I do too. And that's, I think, that, you know, that's a, that's a part of my work and that's how we, you and I ended up um, connected. What I find really interesting about your approach, right, because I spend 
most of my time reading about people who are trying to do this kind of thing in one way or another, but you have a background in uh, rigorous logic, mathematics, you know, more, uh, you seem to know a lot about uh, technology and artificial intelligence and all that sort of stuff. And so, and this is a part of your academic background, right? And so it really yeah. influences the way that you try to make sense of things. It's, to me, it's very unique. It's, it's, different from anything I've encountered. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I started out as a computer scientist and studied a lot of math and a lot of logic. Uh, and uh, certainly have a, you know, a book on math and philosophy. Um, yeah, I think bringing those kinds of sort of bringing a kind of scientific background to these issues can be helpful. I do think that a lot of the things that got talked about in sort of theistic concepts of spirituality end up being really nicely naturalistically understandable in terms of, you know, information and computation. Mm. Um, you know, you think of, uh, think of souls. It's like, okay, that doesn't have to be a mysterious, obscure thing. And you can go back to Aristotle, the soul is the form of the body. And then you try to make that scientifically precise. And you say, well, there's information in our DNA, information in the, you know, connection patterns of nerves in our brains and uh, genetics in our immune system and all the rest of it. And it becomes kind of a programmatic notion of the soul. The soul is kind of a bio program or a body program. Mm. So that's, that's just one little example of how you can take old, I'm interested in taking these old concepts that were defined really non-naturally uh, and trying to naturalize them and say naturalism is rich, it's spiritually rich, and that can be serious science. Right, yeah. Um, so what I, another thing I find really interesting is that you take, um, he takes everybody a, a functionalist approach to religion. Uh, and this is really interesting because what we're trying to do here is uh, what many people in this sphere are trying to do is construct something like, you know, you would call maybe a new religious or a new spiritual vision. And so one thing you can do when you try to do that is say, what functions does religion typically perform for us? You know, what sort of needs do we have? And then how do we, how do we build those functions in another way? How do we answer those questions in another way? And you find answers, Eric, I find that so fascinating in that you said, like you mentioned, just talking about information and computationalism and all these sorts of things. Um, you find answers to like big questions, right? Like, is there a God? Is there an afterlife? Is, is there a soul? You have answers to all these questions. That's correct, right? No, yes, yes. <laughs> no, yes, yes. Uh, what, what was the no to? Yeah, no God. Oh, right. Uh, yes, there's life after death. And yes, there are souls. Right, right. But also the God thing is, um, it's, it's complicated because of the way that we talk about it. But you have like an interesting metaphysics right. about how the, you know, evolution of the, of the universe, universes happens, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So go on. No, I think, I think that's right. Talking about, uh, you know, people who are trying to build uh, new ways of kind of living and emotionally and, and cognitively and aesthetically uh, and just spirit. I like the word spiritual, spiritually rich um, ways of living. Uh, you know, we've got revivals of Buddhism, Stoicism, 
uh, in the West. And you don't probably, yeah, you don't need God for any of this stuff, or you don't need uh, a whole older way of constructing this. And I think that a lot of it comes out of, you know, in the West, Greek and Roman kind of paganisms, which were, you know, pre-Abrahamic and trying to develop these things in their own ways. Uh, a lot of those ideas sort of come back to me. Um, I don't know, does that answer your yeah, question? Yes, it, it, it absolutely does. But so people tend to, we know that as humans, we tend to really like narratives, right? And we tend to really right. like people and connections. And the idea, the reason we have this idea, at least in America and a lot of the West, of God as a man in the sky who's wearing a white robe and has a beard, you know, is, is because we like relating to humans. And I think one of the major challenges of talking about things like science and spirituality is the connectedness, right? The ability to feel like you're having a relation with something. That's often a piece that people like resist when they, when they think about scientific spirituality is, you know, how can I, how can I hold on to this feeling that I have like these cool stories and this guy in the sky that I have a relationship with, right? Because we don't, in your system, you don't have these kinds of relations. Do you think it's feasible? Do you think people could end up like in, enjoying or, or wanting or embracing these kinds of um, scientific viewpoints or are they reserved for people who tend to be more, you know, technologically or scientifically or whatever, mathematically minded, like perhaps you and I? Yeah, those, that's a really good question, um, that it seems to a lot of people that if you get rid of, let's say, God or gods or a goddess or whatever, like that's a personal kind of agent that maybe loves you and cares for you, but of course maybe on its bad days it hates you, um, you know, that, that you're not going to have that personal connection to these other things or the social connection. And I don't, I think that's one of the things that distinguishes, let's say, religion from spirituality, that sort of social relation to, you know, a personal agent, a god or goddess, and uh, thinking of the world socially as a bunch of social persons or agents. You know, the, the, the trees are filled with little elves and the sky is filled with a god. Um, yeah, I think that that means that... It, you can't have kind of a, you know, a religious naturalism. You can't really have a religious way of relating to nature in this kind of scientific sense. What you end up with is, is again, spirituality, which has always been very different, um, that it's been about cultivation of certain virtues of uh, one's own self, which then, of course, becomes social virtues. But you're no longer, you know, you work on the self, you work on virtue, you work on eliminating your vices, you work on having better relations with human persons. And you also understand that a lot of what you thought was socially valuable in your relations to, you know, the natural world or something like that. Um, so like, well, okay, God is glorious, well, what does that mean? Or God is transcendent or God is holy. You know, you can start to understand ways, I think, of transferring those kinds of concepts to aspects of nature, aspects of the natural world. And they are depersonalized, but actually I think depersonalizing them makes them richer 
mm. you know, makes them more, um, like you can get involved, you know, emotionally in a nature that's beautiful, sublime, uh, and vitally alive and vitally rich. Mm. Right. And where there's a process that's going on that includes you as, um, you know, a computation and informationally rich thing. Uh, and it doesn't, I often think that, and there are others who, many others say this better than I, that, you know, uh, saying it's God is just, it's just lazy. It's just, uh, it's like, well, you just, just put it, how did it happen? You know, like, well, God, there was a person and, and there's, I don't, I think we've lived so long in sort of a theistic Abrahamic system that it's hard to see, mm -hmm. right? The ways, let's say, Stoics or Neoplatonists experienced the world, right? They had r intensely rich lives and it wasn't about God. Mm. They didn't, they didn't construct the emotional and cognitive richness of their lives in those terms at all. So I think, it, it, I think there's enormous work to be done here, mm. right? And it's going to yeah. take hundreds of years to do this work. Um, but there, there have been other ways in the West, and I think there will be. Yeah, it, it'll, it'll definitely, it'll be really interesting. It'll be really interesting. I think part of the reason oh. that the Abrahamic traditions, <laughs> yes, that the Abrahamic traditions ended up becoming so successful. In, Spiritual in almost, naturalist society. That's a nice mug. Um, one of the reasons that the, the Abraham, Abrahamic um, traditions became so successful is because they we're able to give humans this, this, you know, they appealed to us and compelled us, right? They uh, got their hooks into us in a, in a new, in a new way. And, and definitely the institutions and their power are all about that and the, and the missionary um, work. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. Like it's definitely very compelling, right? De people are definitely very compelled and we have this long history of becoming more and more entrenched and becoming more and more attached in all of our systems became hooked on this God idea, right? Or this like particular, right. this particular idea of, you know, how the universe is, is built in the, in the myths and, and whatever, and the narratives that go along with it. So we get hooked on this idea. And then and over the course of the last few hundred years, we've deconstructed it we've taken it apart and all of a sudden like you know it's like a web and and you unhook one piece and then it goes it's frayed and you unhook another and it's frayed and you hook another and it's frayed and now we're sort of looking at our options and we see these traditions and they are definitely for some people still very strong and very alive but on the other hand we're sort of like trying to figure out like what you know what what are what are we going to do next and i i think you're right it's, it's going to be interesting but we're going to have to be I think very intentional and very proactive about making sure that we like spiritually land on our feet so to speak you know I think I think we're kind of we're, we're floating and and I appreciate you know very very much what, what you and so many people are doing is trying to find ways for us to land on our feet and and healthfully so you know hopefully be yeah. better. Those, this, 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 yes what you said there is is very good and it's very uh you point to um 
Yeah, let me say let me say two things uh, to respond to what you said. One is uh, so one of the things I find interesting is that atheists have mystical experiences, mm. right? Uh, they do. Um, they are not experiences of God. Um, and, you know, there are cases, uh, you know, Pierre Hedeau was a devout Catholic as a, as a child and in adolescence had spiritual, had, had mystical experiences, full-blown, you know, ego dissolution, the whole thing, which, which revealed to him that there is no God. And he was, he was troubled by these and he eventually, he eventually left Christianity and just became an ordinary sort of atheist. But um, you look at, there are people like uh, Barbara Ehrenreich uh, wrote a book on, you know, wild God, because she had a strange mystical experience. And she had nowhere to turn for language or concepts to describe or deal with her experience besides a kind of old fashioned theism. There was no option. Nobody had ever written anything about oh, you're an atheist, atheists have mystical experiences. You can interpret them without reference to God or religion. Um, and um, just recently, a physicist, Alan Lightman, uh, described a mystical, he wrote a whole book about it called Searching for Stars Off an Island in Maine. Uh, just came out and he had a mystical experience which was profoundly sort of disruptive to his life and didn't really know how to interpret it. You know, and he wrote a book about trying to figure it out that he's a scientist, he doesn't believe in God, but he had this experience and he doesn't know what to do. And so without spiritual naturalism, without a kind of uh, way of saying to people, you, you have these experiences or you have these concerns We've had 2,000 years of Abrahamic interpretation of them, but there are other ways, and you can turn to these other ways. If, if the resources aren't there, um, people like Aaron Wright and Lightman have nowhere else to turn but to old, you know, to a theism, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And I think, so we need the resources. Uh, we need alternatives, right? And you mentioned the thing about landing on our feet. Uh, which I, I think is very interesting in the sense that, uh, yeah, is, this might not turn out well. We might not land on our feet, right? We might fall down. Um, it's not at all clear that uh, th there might be mistakes, let's put it that way, right? It's not at all clear that it's suddenly everything is successful. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I sometimes wonder, I look around and I say, gee, uh, you know, the Abrahamic religions have become, you know, in, in my view, uh, there's a lot of injustice that they foster and perpetuate. Um, and uh, I, I sometimes wonder, like, gee, what if it were all, you know, Wiccans or something? Would it be better? Or would it just be like, the same injustice under a different, you know, set of concepts? Um, so I think that's troubling. I think there's no guarantees. But I think we, if we don't try to escape from the current conditions of injustice, then, then we're just doomed. Yeah, I, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, 
I agree with you that the attempt is is important and you know a, a big piece I have said this to the audience so many times so I apologize for repeating myself but the reason that I am doing this show these shows is because I, I really firmly believe that the more that we understand how we operate you know the better chance we have at things turning out all right because we'll be able to design systems design spiritual ideas design all the sorts of things that like that actually work and that are effective and that you know help us from lapsing into you know injustices and, and being worse versions of ourselves and and so i think i think one of the most important pieces in, in our quest to become better and to be spiritually whole and all of the things emotionally and injustice and all the like is self-understanding right we we need to know right how, we need to know how we work yeah i don't know yeah i think that kind of self-understanding really is uh crucial and um you know, again, I want to point to the kinds of things that, that, I mean, we know so much more about ourselves through, you know, through neuroscience, through biology, evolutionary biology, studying, you know, these human animals that we are. And we are animals. And that means we've got animal troubles. You know, animals fight and animals have to survive. And, uh, you know, if animals have to cooperate, they might not be as fair or just as they should to each other. So we, but we learn a lot more, I think, scientifically with how we function and how we can function better, right? Um, and I also think that, yeah, sure, obviously, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the ways that through, we learn about ourselves through doing science. And we learn about ourselves, we see ourselves reflected most accurately in, mostly in, in technological mirrors right? Ways that, um, you know, we can learn about ourselves, things that we didn't know about our aggressions, about our um, desires, um, about how to manage ourselves more ethically and more justly. So I hope it does work out. I hope we do land on our feet. <laughs> okay, so let's, uh, let's turn then to technological mirrors and the, and the systems and, and the ideas that you create and, and have discovered. I think that they're super uh, fascinating. They're really uh, quite fascinating. So uh, for a brief primer, um, Eric has, is working on this project of building uh, a spiritual naturalism off of the works of Richard Dawkins, which is, again, fascinating. A lot of people have criticized Dawkins for his beliefs about religion and being sacrilegious and all the sorts of things. And I have opinions here and there. Uh, and but I think uh, I think that Eric here is absolutely right that there are there's some interesting stuff there that you can play with and. I'm not sure if I would have chosen Dawkins personally off of which to build a, a spiritual vision, but I find it really uh, interesting that you did. So first, uh, why Dawkins and what do you do then once you take, cause he, he hasn't like developed rich philosophical systems, right? But that's sort of what you're doing is building a system around a, a foundation that he's built. Is that correct? 
That's a good, yeah, that's a good analogy. Uh, you know, I was reading Dawkins for a variety of reasons, and I started out actually with the God delusion when it came out and the new atheism. Me too, so yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of hype about, about all that. And uh, I read a lot of theistic criticisms of that, and I sort of thought, well, no, you guys aren't actually reading the book, mm. uh, first of all. And uh, I, the, the book that was most influential on me then, I think, I, started, I thought, well, I'm going to read a little bit more Dawkins because it doesn't seem like um, there was always this strategy I, I found among the, the theistic critics. Like, oh, Dawkins was a great biologist. You know, the selfish gene is incredible biology. Wonderful, wonderful. But the God delusion, no, no, no. See, he, he should have stuck to biology. He just can't do philosophy or theology because that that's, requires serious, hard thinking. And I thought, well, he actually, first of all, I thought, wait a minute, he's making arguments, you know, none of which you guys are addressing. Um, and maybe it just is his position that let's, that theology and religion are just empty. Why should he, if that's what you think, why would you engage with theological arguments? And also I thought that Rhetorically, I thought, well, this is smart because what these theists are saying is they want him to sort of fight the battle on their turf. You know, and as soon as you start debating God and start debating all the theologies, you're not doing, you're not doing the other thing. You're no, you're no longer, you've gone into the theologian's castle and you're going to be trapped there. Right, it's a labyrinth. It's the labyrinth of words, and you'll never get out. So just clear the ground. And I thought, right, this is. And I would contrast Dawkins, say, for instance, with Dennett, right, or or Hitchens on both of these these points, right. And I would put him very much parallel to Sam Harris, right, where Sam Harris says, look, fine, I'm just not gonna. I'm not gonna debate all this stuff. I'm going to develop my, you know, westernized secular Buddhism, right? You know, his book, Waking Up, you know, how, how we can apply meditation to have spiritually richer lives. I'm going to, I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, so after the, you know, reading The God Delusion, and, and I, I read the other uh, New Atheists, I thought there's more here than meets the eye. And I realized I had realized that all these people who are criticizing Dawkins hadn't read it, you know, and, and hadn't read. And I realized like this guy has written like 15 books, you know, so I wonder. So the next book I went to read was Unweaving the Rainbow, which I find just to be a brilliant, a brilliant book on the, the, the value and meaning of science. And I have yet to see any you know, critic of Dawkins refer to that book once, you know, and, and Dawkins says remarkable things in a lot of these books. And so sure, most of what he does is focus on, let's say, let's say the details of evolutionary biology in, for instance, the selfish gene or extended phenotype, but you really start to get away from that stuff in a lot of other books. You know, you start in, in Blind Watchmaker, Climbing Mount Improbable, you're dealing with uh, computational ideas. Uh, and by the time you get to Unweaving the Rainbow and the God Delusion, 
I think you start to see a full-blown philosophical position emerging. It's not, it's not worked out with the same kind of consistency and precision that, you know, okay, analytic philosophers want. And he himself will say, look, I'm not a philosopher. I'm just trying to think these things through. Uh, I would also say he's written dozens of, um, you know, newspaper sort of articles or magazine articles where he deals with a lot of these themes really explicitly. He's written probably seven or eight uh, magazine and newspaper articles on the relations between science and religion. He gave the Tanner lectures at Harvard on science and religion. Nobody refers to them. I'm like, look at these, look at these things. They're like, well, he doesn't do philosophy and theology. It's like, have you read the Tanner lectures? And of course not. So I found that very interesting. And as I started to read the things that he was writing, I think I was more inspired by his method than by the particular details. Uh, Cause he'd say something, you know, okay, this something, something. And I'd be like, yeah, you can do better than that. But the method um, that I find very interesting at uh, that he, and he talks over and over again about, you know, for instance, he was inspired by Carl Sagan, uh, by Einstein, uh, and he refers to, you know, Einsteinian religion, which he doesn't like to call religion, right? Because he thinks it's not religion. But he says, there's this other thing and we need to develop it. And I call it spiritual naturalism. Um, he himself says, it's a, if you read Science and the Soul, his latest collection of essays, um, he calls himself spiritual, right? He uses terms like holy, sacred, transcendent. And so that's what I found very interesting. There's a method of recovering old theistic concepts, right? And he's, he's clear about the method. He wrote a whole bunch of uh, things about Jay Gould and Gould's, you know, science and religion are, are non-overlapping magisteria. He says, no, there's one magisterium, right? And it's, it's scientific. And so whatever, whatever meaning you're going to find, you're going to find in that magisterium. And Gould is just wrong, right? We, and we don't give religion all these precious concepts of the sacred, the holy, spirituality, right? And he's written explicitly about that. And also in many of his talks, you know, those, you can get transcripts here and there, but if you listen to the talks, he's given, um, you know, he just gave a, a, did a, did a dialogue with Alan Lightman, with Alan Lightman's book on um, Lightman's mystical experience. And, and at one point Dawkins says, look, you're not going to out-transcendence me, right? He's like, I'm committed to these ideas. I'm just not going to interpret them using theism. So there's, there's a method of trying to take all this, this system of concepts and naturalize it. Um, you know, he talks about holiness. He says, look, this is, this is a precious concept. Atheists who just dismiss this stuff are wrong. And so that's what attracted me to him. I thought, wait, there's a method here. Yeah, he's not, not always very good about how he applies it. Uh, but that can be fixed up. You know, that, and it's different than, it's, it's not Hitchens, it's not Dennett. Uh, it's closest to, to Harris, if you had to pick another of these, you know, four, four horsemen. Um, 
So yeah, I'm, I've been very inspired by, I think, the, the, the method. And it's different than the religious naturalists that, that you've mentioned. Um, so there it is. There's, yeah, building on Dawkins. That's a project I'm trying to complete. Yeah, that's good. If I had to pick a new atheist to build a spiritual vision from, hmm, would I pick Dawkins? I might. I might. Um, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, so uh, let's, let's talk about the, so earlier we mentioned how religion performs some functions, and right. what, what you look to do is see how you can do these with the scientific vision of the world. Uh, so let's say the function of, let's talk about a soul. What is a soul in your scientific framework? How do you build this idea? I think I would start with, um, you know, as I mentioned, the uh, old Greek idea, the Aristotelian idea, the soul is the form of the body. And once you're talking about form, you're talking about structure, you're talking about perhaps abstract structures, right? So you're starting, of course, with the structure and the information that's encoded in the body. Right, the information that's encoded in, in DNA, in genes, and the information encoded in neural connections in your brain and elsewhere, in your, the cellular patterns in your body. But this is information. Uh, it's not, um, you know, and, and it's also intriguing, right? I mean, all, you know, people think, oh, science, that's materialism, things like that. But, you know, no, you know matter might not, I don't think matter is fundamental by any means. Um, so I'm interested in structure. I'm interested in structure. I'm interested in information. Souls are informational structures. Uh, I, I tend to think of them uh, programmatically, as I said, as, as computer programs. Uh, so if I had to say, like, what's your soul? I would say your, your soul is just a certain Turing machine. Now, it might be more complicated than that. Fine. Um, and And I'm very interested if it is more complicated than that, but I don't, but that would be it. That's an ancient pagan Greek concept getting interpreted using contemporary science. And so if I want to learn about my soul, I'm going to study my DNA. I'm going to study my brain. I am hopefully going to study my DNA. I'm trying to get some genetic tests done so I can figure out what's, what's, you know, what's up with my genes. Um, that's the patterning and programming of me. And I can't learn about that. I, first of all, I can't learn about that through theology. I can't learn about that by reading, you know, an ancient book. Uh, I can't learn about that by looking real hard into my own mind, right? I need some person to take some stuff from my body and put it in a big machine and um, have it scanned and analyzed and print out this sequence of ACs, Gs, and Ts to tell me why I do some of the, my body, me, does some of the things it does. So I, um, yeah, thinking of the soul that way makes me think that I'm studying my soul when I get my DNA tested, mm. you know? Yeah, I do, but I think many people would say what's what's appealing about the idea of a soul is that it is it sort of gives you a feeling of permanence right like you have an existential permanence 
and you are a continuous being throughout your life. And we know, or we suspect we're learning in this from the sciences that, you know, we change a lot, right? Our cells are always replacing themselves. Our neurochemistry changes. We become different people. We lose or gain different memories, right? Like we're not a steady self, but the idea of a soul people often, I think like, because you are continuous throughout your life. And then most importantly, you continue on after you die. And when you take on a materialist view of things, a scientific view, usually you have to sacrifice both of these things. The idea that you are a continuous person, one singular person throughout your life, and then that you get to go on. Now, I know you have a concept of, of the afterlife, and I definitely want to hear it. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about this, like these functions of the soul and then how you you know, how you carry it forward after death. Sure, sure. Um, first of all, I don't, I don't think that, you know, a scientific view of nature is materialistic. Um, I don't think that that holds any water at all. Um, well, I mean material in the sense that we are, like, we're not dualistic, right? Like, what exists? Yeah, okay, sure. You know, sure. material reality. Right. Physical stuff. But, but what I think that I am is I think I'm just, a, you know, sort of a, as, as like Ray Kurzweil might say, a patternist. You know, I'm just a bunch of stack of patterns on patterns on patterns, right? I'm, I'm a whole bunch of, you know, sort of organic patterns running on a little cellular patterns, running on a little molecular patterns, on atomic patterns. And those are just running on deeper patterns. It's, it's in, on my view, it's information all the way down. I mean, it's structure all the way down. So this is right in philosophy of science. It's a position called structural realism, or you know, maybe you get fancy names like you know, ontic structural realism. But it's just structuralism. What matters is structure, and and there really is isn't even any stuff. You know, structure is what there is. And if you take that position, you start to think about um, issues like information and complexity. Uh, where does complexity come from? Where does it go? And the most natural point of view is to take an evolutionary perspective. So you say, well, uh, complex things come from simpler things. And they come from simpler things in a way, which is that the simplicity kind of gets copied, gets copied and varied, right? Descent with modification, right? The take a simple thing, it makes a copy of itself, it, modifies the copy a little bit, but information is constantly being passed forward in this system. Uh, so, you know, if you have kids, your genes, most of them in some way or another, end up in the bodies of your kids. Uh, I would think of the soul by analogy, right? That, look, my, my soul is just like a gene in a, in a cosmic animal, right? Now, this is, this is a sort of a pretty far-fetched myth. But if I had to choose a metaphor or a kind of mythic thing, it would be like Hume. So it's like, well, maybe the universe is just an animal that it's also right, an old pagan idea. It's just an animal that reproduces. Well, okay, if that's the case, if it reproduces and evolves, right, it's got little parts. Um, you know, I would just be like a gene in that body, be like an insulin gene in the cosmic animal. And that gene gets copied into the next animal gets copied into the next universe. That's a, you know, that's, look, that's a really sort of mythological image of, of stuff that can be spelled out with more mathematical technicalities, right? Mainly if you've got complexity, it had to come from somewhere. 
And it comes primarily through copying and, and um, modification. And you're in a complex universe. And where did its complexity came from? Well, it came from something earlier that was simpler. And it came through copying and modification. And that makes me think there's going to be a next universe. And where does its complexity come from? It comes from copying and modifying the complexity in ours. And you and I are parts of the complexity of this universe. So it seems to me just from um, ideas of the nature of complexity and information that basically there's going to be an infinite series of um, ever larger and ever more complex structures. And every next structure is going to inherit most of its complexity from the previous structure. The next universe is going to inherit most of its structure from this one. And you're part of this structure. So something like you is going to appear in the next universe. Um, and that, I think, is going to just follow from, ultimately from pretty basic kinds of mathematical reflections. Um, and those get technical, uh, so we can, you know, we can avoid those but, uh, and tell a mythological story instead. Um, but it comes out of thinking about complexity. You know, where does, it, where does complexity come from? How does it develop? Where does it go? Uh, that gives you a certain permanence, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not really into, I'm into life after death, but I'm not into like a permanence of me. You know, I'm a, like, what am I? I mean, 90% of the cells in my body aren't even human. You know, I'm a mess. I'm just a mess. I'm an ecological mess that, you know, bumbles around. And so the structure is going to recur. It's going to be repeated. It's going to be modified in every possible way. Uh, and that's diversity and that's ecology and that's evolution. Don't know if that helped. <laughs> yeah, it did. Um, can we quickly um, talk about what information is and why it's so important to you? I think yeah, a lot I, of people just don't understand like the, you know, the, the technical, I struggle with the technical understanding of the word. Yeah, I think that, that your struggle is, is appropriate. I mean, um, there's a lot of stuff. One of the things that I think is also interesting here in talking about you know, science, I think some atheists and unfortunately a lot of scientists, particularly physicists, give a, give a pretty, you know, you read these popular books by like, you know, Hawking or others, or some, you know, Sean Carroll or, or Lawrence Krauss. And it's like, these guys are presenting physics in a way that you actually don't find when you actually look at the science. It's all neat and it's tidy. So there are a lot of fundamental concepts, um, information being one, that are far from clear. Um, now, now, sort of sure, in a mathematical computational sense, well, we've got you know, Shannon's theory of information. That's, that's just good, solid math. Uh, is it actually applicable to very much? That's a little less clear. Um, what do you get when you get information? Well, you start out with just fundamental um, yes, no choices, right? Just breaking things down into a basic, the, the simplest type of diversity, this or that. And, you know, you spell out enough this or that, you know, this, 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 you know, this, that, this, that, this, that, this, that, 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 that. And you have, then you start to get structure, right? 
Uh, I would say that the way that this sort of these sort of concepts get most fully developed, right? And maybe I, this is my you know philosophical bias coming in, um, is through logic and set theory, right? Um, people sometimes think of sets as containers. That's not a very accurate way to think of them. They're more like sequences of choices. Um, the empty set, choose nothing, right? And then the next set, you only have one choice, which is the empty set, you're zero and you're one. Now you have two choices, right? Choose the empty set, but not the other set, right? That's one zero, now choose neither, zero, zero, you're back to the empty set. You start looking at these things, um, I mean, very basic mathematics is doing, and again, set theory and logic are doing, are, are very basic concepts. I don't know if that helped with information. I mean, information is, um, you really do have to start to think of it, I think, in these mathematical ways to get clarity. But I do think you're right to say it's puzzling. I think a lot of concepts associated with it, the one of the things that's very closely associated with it is entropy. Mm -hmm. And most people say something like entropy is disorder, and that's flat out wrong. Right, that, that it's sort of weird. I mean, and people often think, well, science, gee, Science is all clarity and, and, you know, and you read stuff and it's just like, nope, flat out wrong. Um, Dawkins himself is wrong on this point, you know, or the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, you're, you're getting into, or complexity, what's complexity? Now, I talked about it. I don't know what it is. No one knows. <laughs> um, but I think these are the kinds of, concepts right that we start you know you start with the simplest sorts of concepts information is a very simple concept right it's just binary options um and and if you have any diversity at all right you can build it up out of a sequence of you know okay you got binary options now you got sequences of binary options now you got you know and now you're doing you're doing math and which I like, a lot of people don't like. Um, you know, Dawkins does say that, that what's the difference between theology and, and theology and science? He says the difference is math. Mm. Right? And, well, I like that. I think that's really interesting. Well, you would. <laughs> but I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like, what won't you find in theology books? You know, you'll find science, you know, but you won't find any math. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, I don't know if I made things more obscure or more um, more clear. Uh, I think a little bit of both. So, um, so information. Mysterious. <laughs> information is has become like a very trendy idea in the last couple of decades, and I think that this is in large part audience because of the the rise of computer science right and you're talking about binary sure. choices and but you know these are codes with which we we build computing machines and so people learn about these technologies like eric has extensively and then uh, use them as a, as a model for rethinking our our world and our, our universes and so now we can like tell the story the big bang and all you know the development of an evolution of our of our worlds in terms of information, right, and how it uh, complexifies, how it how it becomes more, which is 
which is really fascinating, but it leads to things like you crafting this, this new spiritual vision, almost it's built out of ones and zeros, you know, and, and that's, it's groundbreaking because, you know, computation has been around for, for so little time in our, in our species existence, but, uh, but a really interesting and, and beautiful metaphor. And so uh, we don't have a ton of time left. Can you tell us a little bit more? We were talking about souls and afterlives and you said that uh, you are interested not in you, you're interested in life after death, but not in like your continued existence. So can you elaborate like, okay, a million years down the line or a thousand or however many years down the line, what would your, would you be having personal experience in your viewpoint or would your conscious, you know, experience your memories would those all be gone but you would be like participating somehow in the unfolding of information do you understand what i yeah sure know? yeah sure let me say let me say uh two things there the, the first uh kind of bridges bridges the question from the last thing um when you say about those zeros and ones and stuff like that and it's, it's sort of groundbreaking it's it's actually really not i mean if you go back you would have to go way back to neoplatonists like Yamblichus right, and Proclus and Porphyry, because these guys were all Pythagoreans, right, and they, they did these kinds of constructions, mm. right, so, you know, sort of the theurgists and Pythagoreans and old Neoplatonists, they were, you know, you read Iamblichus, uh, Porphyry's, you know, Porphyry's, and maybe here is a case where theology had math, Porphyry's elements of theology is constructed on the Euclidean, you know, Euclidean axiomatic method, these guys were Pythagoreans and they thought number was the root of all things. They saw, thought souls were numbers, right? And they constructed the numbers out of the zero and the one, that kind of, or, you know, in their case, more the one and the two, but same thing. So there's, there's old stuff there. Um, the soul and continuity. Yeah. I'm not, I hate consciousness, you know, <laughs> like I, like consciousness is an illusion and, sure. um, I mean that as a slogan, sort of like Dennett does. It's like, not that I don't have awareness and awakeness and experience. I just mean like, oh, you know, consciousness. That's, yeah, yeah, try living in California. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. You're high, you know, Deepak Chopra and your higher consciousness. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, like I watch Black Mirror and I, I, I see the things and it's like there's, yeah, look, copies of me you know, in future universes? Is it me? Well, you know, that's a question that John Locke act, asked 300 years ago. I don't care about John Locke. I'm not living in 1650, right? I mean, I don't, I already know enough about my body and the ways I've changed to know that there's no, you know, that really is an interesting illusion an illusion of a permanent, a permanent self, mm -hmm. uh, a stable abiding center of consciousness. That, yeah, that's a, that's a feel good story. And except that actually it won't help you feel good if you're dealing with all kinds of illnesses, right? Um, you know, what you, what you need is to stop thinking of yourself that way and start to think of yourself as a, as a mess, an ecological mess. Because, gee, why do I feel 
oh, I'm depressed. Why do I feel depressed? Well, it's actually because maybe, um, right, you look at the research, gee, the, my microbiome, you know, all the bacteria in my gut, you know, they have caused some imbalance of cytokines, you know, these uh, interleukins, these little immunomodulators. And the immunomodulators are really what control my mood. And so there's no consciousness involved here. There's a bunch of bacteria in my intestines. And what they are doing makes me feel certain ways. You know, and they're not, and, and they're as much a part of me, right? It's not like there is an Eric Steinhardt that's a pure, self-abiding, clean structure. These are messy poop bacteria. And they, can, they make my moods be what my moods are. You know? Right. My moods are them. And whether or not they're happy. So I think we learn, we, you know, it's such a trap to stay in this sort of early modernist conception of this, you know, self, this monad, this self-abiding, you know, substance about which you can never learn anything which you cannot have any tools to change. If it's sick, if it hurts, um, eh, you can't do anything about it. So I would love to, I just want to get away from all that, you know? Okay, so what do you, I know I keep saying we're going to end, what do you find then emotionally fulfilling about this set of ideas in particular? You know, I find it, I find it liberating. I find it illuminating in a way that, um, so, you know, I've gotten old and as you get old, you start to uh, suffer more from illnesses and illnesses that you didn't think you had because you were young and, and filled with energy uh, start to appear. You know, um, I had psoriasis when I was uh, in my 20s, it went away. I never didn't care about it. It was just like on my shins and elbows. So what? but come, came back with a vengeance of psoriatic arthritis. And uh, I need to deal with that. It's an autoimmune disorder. Um, and uh, so looking at myself as this biological mess of molecules helps me, first of all, get genetic testing done to try to figure out what kind of medications can help. Um, also, using computers and technologies to keep detailed records of my body, right? It's wreaked havoc on my moods um, because it's doing things to my nervous system. You know, so thinking of myself as some pure Cartesian Lockean consciousness would just leave me be a mess, you know, emotionally. And it's liberating to say like, oh, okay, I mean, through, through actual looking at my body using computers and recording devices, I'm able to discover that perhaps I have, as almost every human is infected with the herpes simplex one virus, not herpes simplex two, right? We get herpes simplex one when we're kids. Some people, they end up with shingles from it, right? Others have cold sores. Um, and I get cold sores, um, and you know what? That virus reactivating when it does periodically can produce a massive uh, cytokine storm in your body. That can, that can activate the autoimmune problems of psoriatic arthritis. 
that can cause radical mood instability, um, that can cause me to barely be able to walk, um, give you migraine headaches, right? Because the immune, the immune system's connected to the serotonin system. You know, you get all these things. These are all inflammatory responses. So by observing myself and realizing, because otherwise it's like, what's happening to me? I don't know. I have no idea. And nothing I will ever learn about consciousness or the mind will ever tell me. But learning that, gee, there's a virus and the virus had an outbreak. Your immune system couldn't control it. There's a, there's a cytokine storm. Your body's surging with inflammatory biomarkers. And that's why your moods become unstable. That's why your joints are all swollen and, and, and don't work. When you learn that sort of thing, it's liberating. You learn what's happening to you. You learn who you are. Uh, and I think that, you know, self-knowledge, if you're going to be a philosopher, know thyself. Um, and having that knowledge enables you to change yourself, hopefully in virtuous ways. What a beautiful way to come full circle after talking about self-knowledge at the uh, beginning of this podcast. Um, that was really beautiful. And I have so many more questions. So maybe in the future, we'll be able to have you back on. Uh, All right. Yeah. Thanks for um, having me on now. Yeah, great. So uh, where can people find you if they want to read about your work or read any of your books? Do you have a website? I you know, live in this green sheet. <laughs> uh, I have a website and it's simply uh, www.ericsteinhart.com, E-R-I-C-S-T-E-I-N-H-A-R-T.com. Um, I eventually put most of my writing up there. Um, sometimes it takes a couple of years because of, um, I got to wait. Um, but, uh, I also occasionally write, uh, articles for the spiritual naturalist society. That's snsociety.org, um, which is an interest, you know, there are lots of these kinds of societies out there on the web, on Facebook, um, various naturalist organizations. And, um, there's a lot of it. It's there. Good. Uh, great. Thank you so much. And as ever, um, I am, you can find me at stephanieruper.com, Stephanie Ruper on Pinterest, on Facebook. Uh, this is the meaning of everything. And if you have questions um, or if you uh, want to be entered for that uh, book giveaway I was mentioning earlier, you can uh, send a screenshot of your review to tmoeverything at gmail.com. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, thank you, Eric, and I will uh, talk to you next time.